All summer long we have been mining hidden gems in the books of the kings and the story before us today is a treasure box filled with gems. And what I would like to do with you is read through the entire text. We'll pause as we go through to make some observations. Then we will return to look at three characters. And then finally I'll tell a story that I hope ties things together. So, 2 Kings chapter 5. The text will be on the screen or it's in your Pew Bible, page 547. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the kings of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Aram was located just to the north and east of Israel. When King Asa of Judah in the south was battling the king of Israel, Basha, to his north, the king of Judah paid the king of Aram to become an ally. So the king of Aram attacked Israel from the north, forcing Israel to bring its troops up from the south to defend its borders. Naaman was the commander of the armies of Aram against Israel. Our text says that through him, through Naaman, the Lord had given victory. Does it seem at all odd that God had given victory to an enemy of Israel? The cycle of responding, rejecting, repenting, and being restored is repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Sometimes God would use other kingdoms to get the attention of his people. And in this account, God used Naaman and the army to call the nation back to Yahweh. But we learn Naaman had leprosy. Some of you know that in the worst case scenarios with leprosy, people get lesions on their skin, there's numbness on the extremities, and sometimes they will lose appendages. People with this kind of leprosy are considered unclean and are removed from the community. And anyone who comes in contact with those people are also removed from the community. In the account before us, it is unlikely that Naaman had this kind of leprosy. In the Old Testament, the word leprosy is most often used for all kinds of skin disorders. And the book of Leviticus carefully spells out what kind of skin disorder renders a person clean and what kind renders that person unclean. And just to make sure we are very clear, let me read what Leviticus 13 has to say. A man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. If he has lost his hair from the front of his scalp and has a bald forehead, he is clean. Some of us on staff are relieved. Now that we've cleared that up, let's return to our story. Some of you, that's all you're going to remember. I know I did it anyway. We know that Naaman lived with his family We know that he served with the king and with the army. And if he had the kind of leprosy that we now know as Hansen's disease, 
he would have been removed from his home, from his family, from his position on the king's cabinet, and he would not have been allowed to travel. Verse 2, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master Naaman would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Even though there was a peace treaty in place, there still were border skirmishes, quarrels over which territory belonged to which nation or which ethnic group. In war, it was common when prisoners were taken to turn them into slaves. And a young girl from a border town in Israel was taken as a slave into Naaman's house. She became a house servant. This is the young girl who said to Naaman's wife, there is a prophet in my home country, in Samaria actually, who could cure my master of his leprosy. He should go and see Elisha. So... Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram said. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his boss and told him what the girl had said. And the king said, go, go. I'm going to send a letter of support. Now, why would the king of Israel want to have anything to do with the king of Aram or with his commander, Naaman? Good question. Channel 4, tonight at 10. (laughs) Even though Naaman was the commander of the armies that had defeated Israel, and in spite of the border skirmishes, The two nations were now living under a truce and the leaders were relatively cordial with each other. The king of Aram sent a letter of introduction, gifts equaling 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, enough fabric to make 10 outfits and a request that the king of Israel would heal his commander. The king of Aram may have assumed that Elisha was under the authority of the king of Israel. But that is not how the king of Israel understood this letter. Verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? As a sign of terror and anxiety and grief, the king of Israel tore his clothes because he understood this letter as a provocation to war, a pretext to justify another invasion. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have this man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. 
Elisha's response to the king harkens back to a quarrel between the prophetic office and the political office that's recorded in chapter 3. Perhaps Elisha was a bit aggravated with the king because the only time he ever came calling was when the nation was in trouble. Elisha's response was one of frustration. And he said, send him to me. Send him to me so that he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And in this exchange, we have the central point of this account. This story is recorded here to reveal and confirm the power of Yahweh in a nation and a country where people had abandoned their faith in the one true God. It is not simply Naaman who is to know this truth, but the king and all of the people will be reminded of their heritage and called to worship God once again. With all of the trappings of importance, Naaman made his way to the door of Elisha's home. Elisha does not seem overly impressed with all of the symbols of power. He gives Naaman the back of his hand by sending a servant to the door with the message. Perhaps Elisha is more interested in showing that the power to heal doesn't come from a prophet, but the power to heal comes from God. Wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. There was nothing magical about the Jordan River. Seven is often used as a number of completeness. And what Elisha was asking for was complete obedience and complete trust. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman was ticked. I thought he would come to me and wave a magic wand or recite some incantation and zap I would be healed on the spot. But no, he wants me to go and swim in the dirty Jordan. Man, we've got pristine waters in Damascus better than anything in Israel. The Jordan. You're killing me. And he stormed off. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he heeded their advice, went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Naaman's servants exhibited what we might call a self-differentiated, non-anxious presence. Naaman, they replied, if he had asked you to run a half marathon or to do a hundred push-ups or perhaps eat kale for a month and drink drink, uh, carrot juice for a month, would you have done it? It's not a big deal. Just do it. So he did. And Naaman was healed. It wasn't about the water. Perhaps the healing happened even in spite of the water. It was about believing and acting on that belief. And even with a little faith and lots and lots of encouragement, 
Naaman did what he was asked, and God acted. Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God and stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. A moment ago, I suggested that this story is here to reveal and confirm the power of Yahweh in a land where people had abandoned a commitment to the one true God. Naaman stands in contrast to ancient Israel, a nation that had forgotten Yahweh and entertained false religions. Naaman saw and believed in the one true God. Then Naaman said to Elisha, Please accept the gift from your servant. And the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Why would he want to take dirt back to Aram? Was there something magical in the Israeli soil? At that time, some people believed that the gods were territorial. And a god lived in this particular territory. And perhaps Naaman believed that. Or perhaps he just wanted a symbolic base to take home with him. To remind him of what happened. And to use that soil upon which to erect an altar where he would worship his newfound God. Naaman continued, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Remen was the god of storms and war, the thunderer. Naaman's boss was a follower of Remen. As Naaman stood before the prophet, he began to reflect on the implications of the commitment he had just made. And he seems to be asking, can I get a mulligan here? Can I fudge just a little bit? Elisha does not directly answer the question. He simply replies... Go in peace. Perhaps he is saying, Naaman, do the right thing and you will live in peace. So Naaman went on his way. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is everything all right? Everything's all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them, and then he tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servant and put them away in the house. He sent the men away 
and left. Gehazi was perhaps the associate prophet, sort of like an associate pastor. He would never have the spotlight or the perks that come with the senior position. And now he saw a chance for just a little gain. What harm could it do? What harm could it do? And so he crafted a story. And the story was, Elisha sent me with a message that two young men from the company of the prophets have just come from the hill country. And we could use a little help. Perhaps these two young men from the company of the prophets were students, young students at Bethel Seminary. Some of you may not know that Bethel Seminary is actually mentioned in the Bible, at least in the living Bible. The text of 2 Kings 2.2 says, They went together to Bethel. There, the young prophets of Bethel Seminary came out to meet them. There is no mention of Fuller, or Gordon, or Garrett, or Princeton, Only Bethel Seminary is mentioned in the Old Testament. I just thought some of you and some Bethel Seminary students might like to know that. Last night, someone asked if I photoshopped these verses. They are not photoshopped. (laughs) Well, Gehazi, who I doubt went to Bethel Seminary, fabricated a big story about poor seminary students and duped Naaman out of 150 pounds of silver and enough fabric for two outfits. And he kept it all for himself. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or accept clothes? or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Gehazi piled lie upon lie upon lie and he got caught in his own web of deceit. His actions decredited and demeaned the one true God and the office of the prophet. The consequences for his deception were devastating. And there you have the story of Naaman, the leper. So what? To answer that question, let's take a few more moments to consider three characters of this account. The associate, the commander, and the slave girl. What can we learn from observing their faith? The associate, Gehazi, had been around the church for a long time. He knew the right answers. He probably had done seven years of SSF, or scroll study fellowship. He may have attended seminary. The knowledge of God was in his head, but was faith in his heart. As Elisha's right-hand man, Gehazi was accountable for the integrity of the office and the perception of faith and God in the community. Gehazi did not always agree with his superiors, and he did not like depending on the charity of others. When an opportunity came for a little financial gain, Gehazi succumbed to the temptation. He abandoned what he knew to be right and good 
for a little temporary pleasure. He deceived, he lied, and he took what was not his to take. And then he tried to cover it up. In the Gospels, Jesus tells a story of a farmer who scattered seeds. Some of the seeds fell on shallow or rocky soil. It germinated and then it withered and died. I wonder if the faith of Gehazi was perhaps like those seeds of faith. And then there's Naaman, the commander, miraculously healed by God. His life was dramatically changed. He was on fire for God. It was as if he had just returned from a spiritual retreat or a week at a church camp. And in his excitement, he hurried back to Elijah to proclaim his newfound faith. Now I know for certain, and I believe, he said. He offered to make a large contribution to the work of the prophet. He gathered symbols to mark his newfound experience of faith. And then he began to think about the decision and was conflicted. When I go home, what will I do? In Aram, they bow down to a different God. My boss might not understand. So Naaman began to back away slightly. Elisha, he asked, will it be okay if I bow down? Will God forgive this small compromise? Perhaps he was like the seed that fell among the thorns, which threatened to crowd out or choke out his faith. And then there was the young Jewish girl. Life had been unfair. She was snatched from home and family and forced into domestic servitude in a foreign land. Nothing was familiar. She was just a slave. Property of little significance other than what she could offer to her owner. She had no voice. If anyone had reason to doubt God, this innocent slave girl did. What kind of God would allow this to happen to a young child? What kind of person would worship such a God who allowed this to happen? In a strange land and a strange culture, where her faith was not shared, it would be easy to remain silent and to hide her convictions. But this young girl spoke up. She said, where I come from, God is alive. And I know a man of God who can help. Wouldn't she harbor bitterness? Why would she want to help her captor? Perhaps because somewhere along the line, she had been touched by the grace of God. Even in horrible circumstances, she had learned to draw upon God's love and faithfulness. Her faith was like that of the seed that fell on fertile soil. The roots went deep. The plant grew strong and stood firm during the storms, and it bore much fruit. Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, have the faith of a servant girl, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Many years ago, a rookie pastor was leading a small congregation in the suburbs of Des Moines. We were trying to understand what it means to be touched by grace and how we might in turn touch others with the love of Jesus. Marion, one of our members, worked in an office downtown. 
Marion was trying to live out her faith in the workplace. What would it mean to live like Jesus? What would it mean to be salt and light in the market? Many women employed by that company gathered in the break room for lunch or break times. And on one day, the conversation turned to welfare moms. Comments became increasingly judgmental, prejudicial, and angry. For a while, Marion sat in silence. Finally, she spoke up and she said something like this. I don't know that we should sit here and judge these women. We don't really understand their circumstances. These are people that God loves. And I doubt that any of them would have chosen to be a welfare mom. I honestly don't know where the conversation went from that point. But I do know that Shondell was paying attention. Later, she approached Marion privately and thanked her for speaking up. Shondell told Marion, I have two boys and their father does not live with me. Not long ago, before I got this job, I was a welfare mom. In subsequent weeks, Marion and Shondell got to know each other better and they began to talk about faith. One day at the invitation of Marion, Shondell and her two boys came to our church and the boys became active in our Sunday school. A while later, someone from the church community reached out to the boy's father and began to meet one-on-one with him to study the Bible. I would like to tell you that Shondell and the boy's father were were reconciled and lived happily ever after. I honestly don't remember all of the details. And after 30-plus years, I've lost contact with those people. But what I do remember is that Marion touched by grace of Jesus, shared that graciousness with the people in her world, and her, her life made a difference. What about you and me? The walk of faith can take so many different paths. Are we more like the associate whose faith was easily abandoned when something better happened along? Are we perhaps like Naaman, squeezed into compromise, by the thorns of culture. I hope we are mostly like a young girl who under pressure shared God's grace with those in her world. I pray that God will so touch us with grace that the light of Jesus will shine through us so that others will be drawn to the one true God. Let's pray. God, this thing that we call faith can teeter in so many directions. Sometimes we have great intentions and are easily dissuaded. We want so much to be like the servant girl who stood firm no matter what the case. By your spirit, empower us to be salt and light for Jesus in our world. Amen.